This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Welcome back to the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, guys. We want to give a quick shout out to all of you who've made the show possible. We just hit our first thousand downloads in a very, very short period of time. So that's super awesome. So thank you guys for listening to the show. If you want to help, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you listen and help us kind of grow the show. So we want to welcome the guys from Blue Bear Capital to the show today. What's going on, guys? Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So we've got Ernst Sack and Tim Copra, both, what do you go by? Managing partners, directors, Whatever you head, want to make. head yeah, boss guys at Blueberry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you guys do, and then we'll kind of dive into all stories. So high level at Blueberry, we're investing in data-driven technologies for the energy supply chain. And there's two mega trends that we're especially excited about that we feel are, in a way, defining our entire generation, and, and we feel we can help promote. And one is digitizing very large, critical industries and energies the biggest and most critical industry on the planet, we would argue. There's trillions or tens of trillions of dollars of assets that can benefit from data-driven technologies and proven business models. And then the second is applying a lot of the great technical and execution expertise of the oil and gas industry to the emergence of industrial-scale wind, solar, energy storage. So we think there's a lot of opportunity in both, and we're excited about that. Cool. So you guys have both very different backgrounds. And I know you guys, what, met in school? Yeah, we met at, at Columbia and London Business School back okay. in 2011 to 2013. Okay. So Tim, you want to start with yours? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you've got an interesting story and everybody's like completely just obsessed with your story. And I've heard a lot of people kind of talking about, oh man, I got to meet this astronaut guy. So <laughs> let's kind of dive into that. And then, you know, Ernst, you want to tell your story afterwards and we kind of loop it into Columbia and then kind of where you guys are out now. Yeah, sure. No, we we thought from the very start that it's important to combine various skills within the fund. And I think that's one thing that's a differentiator for us. My background has always been at the intersection between technology operations and small teams. I started out as a military aviator and had leadership and operational jobs and then went a much more technical route. Studied aerospace engineering at Georgia Tech, went to Navy test pilot school and became an experimental test pilot. And from there, I led a small team of engineers and test pilots as part of the Comanche helicopter program as a developmental test director. And then I was invited to work at Johnson Space Center just down the road and became an astronaut back in 2000. Had two Chances to fly in space once uh, for two months on board International Space Station up on Endeavour and then down on Space Shuttle Discovery. And then again in 2016, served on board for six months on the International Space Station as commander of Expedition 47. And frankly, you know, in between there, went to business school and had this opportunity to really think about, hey, what does one do when you finish up your career as an astronaut? That conversation began back in 2011, 2012 timeframe with Ernst and his his private equity background. You know, how do you take a unique background in space and operations and technology and then and do something new in the in the real world? And it turned out that this venture was exactly appropriate and really fulfilling. So I have to ask, what is what is space like? I think everybody's wondering. <laughs> you know, it is a great place to work and live. I recommend it. <laughs> I think you'd like it. It's also a ton of work, but uh, yeah. you get a very unique perspective looking out the window. You know, when you're there for a long period of time, like six months, 
you really feel like you become 100% adapted to this brand new environment that's separate from Earth. And yeah, really grateful for the opportunity and a phenomenal team effort too, because we're at the pointy end of the spear and we're the hands-on operations and maintenance people and also Mm -hmm. working with whole series of complex systems like the life support system, thermal control system, generating power, storing the power. But really, the uh, the Yeoman's work is happening on the ground, the Mission Control Center and all the engineers that support mm-hmm. the effort. So you really get this great appreciation for what can happen with a great team. Is there like any kind of anxiety while you're up there that just like everything can go wrong? I mean, obviously, like every space movie, it's like it's built around something completely dramatic. And so that's like the first thing that I kind of think of. Yeah. You know, there's three times that you know your life is in peril when you launch, when you do a spacewalk and when you come back home. Mm-hmm. But when you're on board space station, you almost have to remind yourself it is not an hospitable environment because you're living in a vacuum. You're separated by this thin shell of aluminum. And you know, especially when you're the commander and you're trying to make sure that your crew is ready, if you have a punctured hole, you're really thinking about these kinds of things. But it really feels like a normal environment, mm-hmm. except for those other three times. Okay. Man. It's, it's hard to be, mind blowing. It's harder to be cooler it. than Tim. Like it's <laughs> hard to hard to have a cooler story. It's than like that. all my stories are not cool now. <laughs> yeah. So Ernst, thanks for that setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pass it over to you now. But you got a pretty cool story too. You come from private equity background, so let us know a little bit about your private equity history, and then up leading to the point where you guys met in school. Yeah, well, completely different background to Tim's, and much less impressive. I grew up in Pittsburgh, so always with kind of an industrial background been fascinated about the ener- in the energy industry really the the technology development the geopolitics the the social impact spent some time in Russia and the investment opportunities in energy and how much those steer developments across the macro landscape has always been a real driver for me so I ended up fast forward working for a place called Riverstone which is maybe not a household name but the largest energy-focused private equity firm in the world, about mm-hmm. 40-odd billion dollars of AUM exclusively in oil, gas, wind, solar, pipeline, service companies. Love that experience. Started originally in the New York office with a lot of time on the ground in Texas, Oklahoma, Western Canada. And Riverstone ended up attracting a guy named John Brown, who'd been chairman and CEO of BP for many years, also on the boards of Goldman Sachs and Intel and other firms, to build a London office. So I thought that's a great opportunity to, to diversify my, my deal flow and my experience a little bit working with more operators and strategic minds in the energy industry. So I went over London for a while and have been very engaged in all aspects of the energy supply chain, but found more and more so over time that being of a generation that's grown up at least halfway digital native, that there's a big opportunity not being exploited by the traditional energy investors. And that's in the AI and IoT and cybersecurity and blockchain type categories that traditionally have been the domain of Silicon Valley. So with a number of peers at other energy-focused private equity firms, we started really almost more of a club nights and weekends comparing deal flow and picking the best-in-class companies and investing them out of our personal accounts. Eventually realized this is really a generational opportunity that merits a more systematic approach. So I uh, got back together with Tim and a couple other people in our network who we think add a lot to the skill sets that are required to do this in a professional way. Tim, as he mentioned, we'd been at business school together, although we'd gotten there from very different paths, but decided that this was worth doing right and doing full-time. So I set up Blue Bear in really throughout the later parts of 2016, launched in January 2017. A couple other team members are uh, Rob McGinnis, who's a computer science PhD and software developer and, and architect, 
really adds a lot to our diligence capabilities. Thomer Baljanaim, who's our associate, does a lot of the heavy lifting and a great financial background. Carolyn Funk, who's a PhD as well. She's a former Siemens venture capital team member who is COO of an energy storage business. So a great team is built up around this. So nobody, so obviously a lot of people want to focus on like, you know, what you, you guys deploying capital with startups and stuff, but let's kind of focus on what you, what you said about you guys actually being the startup yourself as a startup VC firm. I think Tim, whenever we had lunch, I think you mentioned that, you know, Hey, we have to go out and raise money too. Can you guys kind of talk about that process of what it was like for you guys? Was this your first time raising capital? I don't, I don't know if you were part of that process or not at Riverstone or not. Can you just so I guess everybody can kind of see that it's not always just easy for you guys as well. You know, I can give the perspective of someone who's not the private equity person coming into this. You know, Ursa and I, we first started talking this back in uh, in 2013, but, you know, really became a more term, mature conversation when I came back from Space Station in the summer of, of 2016. But really, Ernst set the groundwork with the first 12 LPs that we had, mm-hmm. made our first investment in, uh, in January of 2017. So it was that initial step. And frankly, we spent the first year time frame about that time frame really focusing on building the the portfolio and a lot of the the investments were really organic from our network and it wasn't until a little bit later once we had a portfolio that we started to focus more on the fundraising bit but you know just like a startup it's a ton of work mm-hmm. yeah and we've certainly seen throughout our careers that no matter how big and impressive of a of a company you're interfacing with they have a board, they have funding requirements, they have have to face the market and tell a story. And, you know, we're certainly right in there with a number of the kind of elements of the community that are that are raising capital and building a platform. So we relate to that when we meet with teams. Awesome. And this week previously, you guys had your Blue Bear CEO Summit. Jake and I had the pleasure of getting to attend that. Talk to several of your portfolio companies there. You had them up there presenting. Do you guys want to talk about some of the guys that you have in your portfolio and kind of what what range of investments y'all are covering, whether it's oil and gas, electricity, wind, solar? Yeah, sure. So again, high level, we believe the opportunity is across the energy supply chain. We're not dogmatic or political about it. We we recognize that oil and gas is over 80% of the energy mix today. So if you're going to be a professional energy investor, it's hard to ignore that. And there are tremendous opportunities to improve the efficiency and the productivity and the safety of that industry. At the same time, the fastest growing category, certainly if you're going to commit your career to energy today, we feel is on the renewables front and there's a surprising number of synergies and integrations between the two in the supply chain. So we, we span across that. We're traditionally much more on the supply side than on the demand side. So we love digital technology that's deployed in the production, development, distribution, delivery of energy, less so than maybe consumer-facing apps that help you manage your carbon footprint. That stuff's interesting too, but we're you know less differentiated there. And maybe given a quick cross-section of the portfolio is a, an easy way to illustrate what we've invested in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sure. So let's kind of go back and forth maybe. So the very first company we invested in was Mineralsoft, which does mm-hmm. uh, data aggregation, data management for mineral rights. Mm-hmm. Omnidian, which is does remote sensing for data analytics and diagnostics for distributed solar. So really helping the, the maintenance, mm-hmm. operations and maintenance process for rooftop solar. Mission Secure, which is industrial control system, cybersecurity, doing amazing work in both defense and oil and gas and really industry in general. We thought their their demo was 
very effective. Yeah, really cool, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, they do a great job with that. Yeah, and it's an interesting one because so much of what we all invest in and talk about is connecting things and enabling analytics and AI, but but that creates a dark side. You create a lot of attack surfaces and there's a whole new category of protection that's required now. Yeah, Jake and I were at a SPE's ATC event several weeks ago, and one of the topics of conversation that kept coming up was just like in our cyber private security. conversations. Yeah, it was yeah, just like everybody's getting hacked and nobody's talking about and, it. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're kind of sweeping under the rug. Yeah, and, and the more that we digitalize oil and gas, you know, we come out with all these oil and gas softwares, all the IoT. You know, we start automating everything. The risk exposure just keeps increasing for cybersecurity risks. So I think that's something that we're, it's going to be an interesting market over the next several years. And with Mission Secure, really impressed with what they're doing. For all our listeners that weren't at Blue Bear CEO Summit, they had this physical demonstration that showed a control system getting hacked and how their software was able to mitigate that. And I was telling their CEO, I said, man, that's perfect. You know, humans are visual learners. So when you can visualize the concept of it, that's an awesome display. A lot of education when it comes to cybersecurity, right? Especially mm -hmm. at the board level, because I think what's not completely evident is the cybersecurity is not just protecting at the IT level, your your own personal information. It's about protecting hardware, mm -hmm. like the pro programmable logic controller that's actually changing valve positions and changing compressor settings. So it's it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. It is, and one of the things you know they that they showed in their presentation and talking with their CEO is a lot of people don't think with all these controllers you can show the operators one thing on the screen. So they think all systems are go, everything's running fine. But at the actual, you know, at the site where the process is taking place, you know, shit's just going haywire. So he <laughs> said, you know, that that's something that you don't think about that just because you're seeing something that's running well. Or on they can system. show something on the screen to elicit a response from an operator to generate a scenario that they wanted to happen, which opens it up for an attack too. Yeah. And you have the yeah. operator go out and carry out the mission for you essentially. And then yeah. he takes the blame. So yeah, I don't think a lot of people, you know, you, you, you talk to the mission secure guys and you get a little uneasy. You're like, man, we're really vulnerable across the, the energy grid. So, Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's going to be wild. They've done, for example, a scoping project for a large operator. And the idea from the operator was, let's just see if this works and doesn't interfere with our asset. We don't have a risk. Let's just make sure it doesn't blow up our assets. And a simple demo Mission Secure showed that you already have 26 unauthorized users on your network. So you didn't even <laughs> know we're there. And that's not unique to this operator. Virtually everyone in the industry already has these incursions and some of them are deliberate attacks. Some of them are just, you know, a worker bringing their Roku to the office to watch a movie yeah. in some downtime. And, you know, that happens constantly. I'm sure that's going to be an uneasy feeling for the clients. You know, you have audit ran and it's like, oh yeah, well, there's already unauthorized users on your network. So <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's, it's an easy sell for missions to secure though. I'm sure. So, yeah, okay. So. So what other portfolio? So uh, Shoreline, which is project development, operations and maintenance software, simulation software. So you can optimize all those processes. So if you look at a lot of offshore wind or really large scale renewables, there are so many different factors that go into how do you do the, the project development or the operations and maintenance and optimize those solutions. For offshore mm -hmm. wind, it's things like everything from the range of the helicopter, day rates of the boats, the qualification for the workers, all these factors fuel have to go in, yeah, yeah, fuel okay. efficiency. Yeah. So how do you how do you optimize all those solutions so you can minimize cost mm -hmm. and great customer base so far? Absolutely. And then a few of the more recent investments, 
Element Analytics is industrial time series data management, which uh, may sound less sexy to a, a generalist, but is actually one of the critical layers in what we call the, the data value chain. So we all have seen the stats from McKinsey and others that there's 30,000 plus sensors on a on a platform, but less than 1% of that gets turned into actionable information. There's this deluge of data exhaust. So Element's a way to automate the tagging, mapping, graphing, contextualizing that data to build basically a model or a simulation or digital twin, whatever term you want to use, of the actual machinery, the the process, the the asset. That's really interesting that you said that, you know, data management isn't something that's typically looked at as something sexy, but it's something that we deal with a lot with WellHub because oil and gas is trying to, seems like almost try to skip a step sometimes. Yeah. You know, they're starting to look at machine learning, artificial intelligence, blockchain, but, you know, we have some very rudimentary problems that we have to solve in oil and gas, which include data management, you know, extracting this data out of deep silos and getting everything aggregated and getting it cleaned up to where then we yeah. can, anal- you know, analyze it. And- How can you train a machine learning algorithm off of Excel spreadsheets? Yeah, yeah so exactly. When, when Jake tells people that he's building a, a data management platform, it doesn't sound that sexy, but it's a huge problem in oil and gas. So. And- I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same data points, but we we did a lot of research on this and people are out there paying data scientists $250,000 plus a year. And then those data scientists are spending 80% of their time just doing cleanup work. Yeah. And this kind of solution. Yeah, yeah, that's the exact stat time, that I that I tell customers as well. It's 80, 85% of the time is spent on data aggregation and preparation. And then 97% of the data that they collect is never actually used. Mm-hmm. So until you fix the access to data problem, you can't ever focus on what you actually do with the information to begin with. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's, and it's industry wide too, from Exxon mobile all the way down to, to smaller shops. So For sure. A couple other companies were invested in FreeWire is mobile energy storage solutions. They've got two big markets they're in. One is competing against the traditional diesel generator approach and work sites and all kinds of different applications anywhere you'd see a diesel generator. And the other is electric vehicle charging infrastructure. That's one that we we weren't as familiar with when we first invested, but is really taking off very fast as, as I'm sure you've seen. And then our most recent investment, a company called Expedi, which is based just around the corner here. They're basically an online platform marketplace for MRO, maintenance, repair, operations, equipment and supplies, initially in the energy market and then going more broadly. And they they enable purchasing and analytics platform for any equipment that you might be using in energy operations. I didn't realize this until we got involved with Expedia. I'm sure that Ernst saw this from his private equity days, but for me, it was new that the pricing for a lot of this MRO equipment is completely opaque in general. Whereas what Expedia does is there's transparency in the pricing. They've eased the process of purchasing it online from their website. And then they match that with really stellar execution. So really combining the new world, which is this online platform and the old world, which is really about relationships, having the knowledge base and doing great delivery. So I have one. So we, we talked with those guys and I love the presentation and I, I hope I hope the industry adopts and I hope it blows up. We have customers all the time tell us like, hey, I know you don't deal with stuff on the supply side, but do you have anything that's like an Amazon for oil and gas? <laughs> and I'm like, well, now, now that you know, I know of Expedia, I can send them there. Well, we um, tried really hard in the in the description not to say Amazon for oil and gas, but that's kind of what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to kind of call it what it is. <laughs> so I guess, so, so my question, whenever you were first telling me about this, I think I might've asked yeah. is that we've seen over the years, starting as early as like 2000, 2002, people were trying to kind of create that Amazon for oil and gas and repeatedly have failed. Is there anything that you believe, you think maybe it's a timing thing? Do you think it's a technology thing? Maybe a different angle that will make Expedia more successful than what we've seen in the past? Because 
I've seen so many failures. It's, it's primarily a management yeah. team thing, which is the okay. answer in a lot of these cases. None yeah. of the technologies we've described are really revolutionary. We're not smart enough to predict new science. It's about execution and management. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I think one of the trend is also that the, uh, the digital natives that are working out the oil platform is simply using their iPhone and yep. using an iPad. You know, that level of adoption is one of the things that's an enabler. Yeah. But the then, great crew change is perfect timing for this investment thesis. Yeah. But really, I mean, the execution component's great too. I mean, the, yeah. the CEO has spent his career in oil and gas, spent a lot of time in China, fluent in Chinese. Mm. His father, president, is also the president of the company and was president of Platts, mm-hmm. commodities data management yep. uh, yeah. company. So you have a CEO who is working with all the OEMs, the, the roots of the supply chain in China, and the other leader of the business who was running a $700 million plus dollar revenue energy data business. So you bring those Very two cool. skill sets That's together team. Yeah. and they have, they do things like throw barbecues for rig managers, <laughs> which just speaks to their, you know, how they relate to and take care of their customers. It's funny, even with new technology, that's how you get in good with the rig crews. You got to throw them a barbecue and cook for them. I mean, I think so, some things don't change. In the bigger picture, that's still how you do business in oil. You know, a lot of our business is still done. Yeah, we were just yeah. talking <laughs> over drinks and dinners yeah. and other shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> we were just chatting with uh, with Tim and Larry at, at our board meeting and, you know, how they typified the culture out in the oil patches that people are skeptical, right? Because they've been bit in the past. And so mm-hmm. you need to be able to establish trust and that's based upon how well you do and how honest you're with them. So yeah. I think that's really their advantage. And I think this takes us to a next point. So you guys are talking about how you invest in management teams mm-hmm. because to be honest, ideas are shit. It's all about execution, right? So you can have the greatest idea in the world, but if you don't have the right team to carry out the idea, it doesn't really mean much. So how about we carry it over into the next topic of conversation and talk about what do you guys look for when you're investing in a company and kind of give us some of the, you know, I'd say the profile of founders and management teams that you invest in. Mm. You know, I think one common strain through all the companies is that there's very clear expertise within the industry and then they have the technology, right? So, uh, Wilcox, CEO of Mineralsoft, came from an energy family. So he kind of grew up there mm-hmm. and understood it. And if you look at, at our CEOs all the way down the line, they have this very strong industry-based, knowledge base, but then also this, the personality factor, you know, people that have clear leadership capabilities and have built a team behind them. Yeah. And we always say you, and we say this because we've seen it happen and, and not work. You can't show up in Odessa to an operating manager and say, I'm here from Silicon Valley. My algorithm is smarter than your engineer. Yeah. <laughs> and there are elements in which that may be true, but first of all, it's not going to sell. And secondly, you know, a lot of this stuff is based on physics models and supply chain understanding that you have to really have a specific technical knowledge base around, and then you can apply the best, you know, best in class software engineering and, and SaaS business models. So all of our teams represent that, that combination. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then, you know, this is something at Deep Rock Advisors, we have technology companies come to us that want to integrate into oil and gas. And, you know, my background is 
straight out of high school, I started roughnecking on drilling rigs in mm-hmm. West Texas. And so that was something I was always thankful for that I grew up um, in the field operations to learn that culture yep. and learn how to penetrate that market because that is something that is very important. And I always laugh when I hear, you know, Google on stage here at, at certain conferences I'm saying that they're getting, I was watching yeah, it, right? yeah, yeah. I get a little, little irritated by Google coming in and saying that they're going to solve all of oil and gas data problems because oil and gas doesn't know how to talk to technology and technology doesn't know how to talk to oil and gas. Yeah. So there definitely has to be those communicators between the bridge the uh, gap in miscommunication. So, you know, I think that you have to have an understanding both from a cultural angle in oil and gas, but also have the the technical expertise when it comes to new tech. Mm-hmm. You know, another factor, which is, is sort of it's motherhood really, but you need to have both a leader and a team that has really high integrity and mm-hmm. is easy to work with. Right. And you can get those kinds of that kind of information pretty quickly when you start working with a team and talking to them. So you know, I think we put a really high bar on that. You can have someone who's very uh, sales oriented, but it needs to be done in a high integrity kind yeah, of way. And there's Definitely. multiple layers to that. Obviously there's kind of a bullshit detection mm-hmm. and Tim, one of his great skills he was in charge of or on the board in charge of selection for the NASA astronaut program for a period <laughs> of time and going from how many, yeah, we went from this last selection. We went from eighteen thousand three hundred. We picked a dozen. So wow! So that's a lot of. Cut. <laughs> that's a lot of what, what I imagine is you know locking people in a room and doing marble tests and trust falls and psychological profiling. How do you how do you evaluation? I'm really curious. Like, how do you go down from a pool of eighteen thousand to you know just just a handful? Like, what what's that process look like? Because right now I'm looking at seventy applications for one of our positions, and I'm just like, man, where do I even yeah. even start when it comes to whittling down the talent pool? So how, how do you even begin that process? So that's a very unique process because it's so many and it's going to be so few that you pick. But from that 18,000, there's a certain number that's going to have the basic qualifications and those are published, right? So that might be, call it 6,000. And then out of that, you're going to look through the backgrounds and find the best based on paper and about 600. And you'll send out requests for information from their references. That 600 comes down to about 120. The 120 gets interviewed. The first interview is 120 from that. You pick it down to 50, the 50 down to a dozen. But, uh, you know, one of the main things that we look for in that environment is what we call expeditionary behavior. Really, the standard is like, who do you want to go camping with, right? Yeah. And it's really three things. It's someone who can take care of themselves. Like when you're on a camping trip, the person actually takes care of their own sleeping bag, their own place. You don't have to look out after them. A good follower, which means they intuitively know how to fit into the team. Mm-hmm. And then a good leader who knows how to take advantage of the synergies of the people within his team. So those are the things that we look at. And frankly, very similar to the companies that we look at. You want someone who can take care of themselves, who's who's able to be coachable. Because if you have a really strong CEO, you can tell is not going to take any kind of advice. That's probably a red flag. And yeah. then a good leader. And you can tell that. I just I was at, we didn't talk about Omnidian, but it's a company in Seattle that's growing like game busters. That's the solar business. Yeah, solar mm. business. Oh, so okay. they yeah. have like 16,000 assets under management, likely that's going to grow wildly. Wow. But just walking through the halls of their, their WeWorks up in Seattle, you could tell that it is a great team. And there's a reason that it was the number two company, small company in Seattle for workplace. So, I mean, you can just tell in a city that has such a hard time with getting good talent, they have no problem attracting talent. So, I mean, that's a, a great force multiplier there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you dived into that because, you know, when you're in early stage startup, 
your first few hires are critical, yeah. you know, to bring, who you bring on to your team. So that's a good little trick to remember from Tim. Who would you go camping with and kind of uh, refine your hiring process by using that simple methodology? I kind of go back to just my time in the Marine Corps as well. Like who would you want covering your six? Absolutely. And that whittled down a lot of people. <laughs> so it may make hiring a little hard for us. Yeah. <laughs> but so speaking of kind of like whittling things down, I remember you know, Tim, when we had lunch, you mentioned that you guys looked through like seven or 800 companies as far as like deal flow. And you've obviously invested in, you know, a dozen or maybe a little bit more. What is that process like? And, and what do you, what do you, what sticks out to you guys? Is there certain things that are obviously you're like, ah, this, we thought it was interesting. We're not going to look at that. Or there's certain things that you guys gravitate towards obviously within supply chain. Yeah. So a good segue from the last topic, we've now looked at 956 companies, I think, wow. uh, in the last just about two years. Jeez. And that, that's a pretty high-level screen. That captures anything that comes across our desk or across our network, which is actually a lot of inbound. That's applying technology to the energy industry and is early stage enough that they might take a meeting with us. Obviously, Schlumberger is applying technology to the energy industry, but we're not going to put them on our screen. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty broad set. But then when you focus down, it's easy for us to look for digital technologies and energy categories that we think are attractive and in scope and set to grow. So we're not going to look at much in areas like coal, which may be technically interesting, but but don't fit the growth profile we're looking for. And we're not going to look at very speculative things like helium-3 or algae. We'll leave that to, to some scientists. But then the third factor, which is in a way the least interesting, but but very important, is commercial. So we talk a lot about the importance of the integrity of a team and their skill set and their fit but it's also critical that they can make money. Mm-hmm. So we're, we just, as much as we want to support great early stage companies, we just don't have the bandwidth to support a business that hasn't yet proven that they can already on their own Get make their first kind of couple, a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue by selling a real functional product to an enterprise customer base within this industry. So that commercial skill of the management team is critical and having at least an early degree of product market fit which is something you can debate all day what that really means, whether it's one pilot or, or 10 arm's length recurring annual subscriptions. But having a sales strategy and execution capability demonstrated, and that probably yeah. gets the 950 down to maybe 300 or so. Yeah. you know, and During the CEO summit, Ernst pointed out that we've only selected 1% of the companies we've looked at. And you could tell that the the uh, portfolio companies were kind of impressed. They said that in their presentations. Wow, we're part of the one percent. You know, it's <laughs> kind of cool. But you know, the the next phase after that is you know, once we get down to the place we're really looking strongly at a company, we'll introduce that company to the portfolio companies and private equity firms that we have relationships with. And it does a couple of things. One, it helps us really prove out the value proposition because we get to get feedback from people that we trust in our network. And the second thing is it's an early customer introduction. So on more than a few occasions, the companies we've invested in, they've come out with a customer even before we finish the due diligence process. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's that's an important point. The the network there is is really organic. And that's another way that I think we as the investment community that has roots within the industry can differentiate ourselves a little bit from from the classic coastal VCs in a way is actually having our own network of former colleagues, people we've sat on boards of, have invested in, have been mentors of ours, whatever the case may be, who are actually decision makers and customers at the biggest oil, gas, wind, and solar companies on the planet. And as Tim pointed out, in addition to that, the private equity network. So we don't have one big strategic partner or parent, but we have investment from, I don't know, maybe 
12 of the 15 biggest energy private equity investment firms. And that means collectively probably three or 400 operating companies that are actively on the lookout for AI, IoT, mm-hmm. cybersecurity solutions because they want to get an edge over their competition. And that's a great network for us to make real proactive introductions through. And everybody's happy to take that meeting. Yeah. So you guys bring a lot more value than just cutting a check. Yeah. And oh, I, think, I, I think that a lot of founders don't think about that. You know, sometimes they're just chasing a check and don't really consider who they're accepting money from or if there's any other value adds that come from that investor. So that's really something important to think about if you are looking to raise capital. It's one of the funniest things whenever we sit down with investors, I end up asking way more questions than they do and they get caught off guard. Where I was at the Rice Alliance like down two or three years ago, and I've been so many years now, and I sat down and I was like, okay, listen, everybody here has got money. What makes you different and why should I work with you? And the guy was just like, uh, and he pointed <laughs> to his partner and he was just like, you want to answer this? <laughs> so that and, was pretty and, funny. And you can try to quantify it. I think we've now added material customers for almost all, if not all of our portfolio companies. In many cases, it's the biggest or second or third biggest customer in the in the business. And if you think about it, you bring in, let's say, a SaaS software as a service customer who ends up signing a million dollar subscription at a six to 10 times revenue multiple in the next financing round, you've just added $10 million of value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know not to say we've added it, we've just made an introduction that the company is then executed on. But that that should make up for maybe not being the highest bidder in evaluation discussion. Yeah. So where do you guys position yourself kind of in the spirit of transparency? Is there a certain round that you usually come in? Is it seed round? Is it series A? Do you guys work, do anything on the growth side? You know, like we, B and on? We hate the alphabet game. It's yeah. really early revenue. Yeah. Early revenue. Yeah. So, you know, now there's C, A, A1, A2, B. I mean, <laughs> you kind of get lost. Yeah. It's really early revenue. Yeah. But, uh, okay. you know, what that translates to is finding the sweet spot between early revenue valuations that make sense for us to invest in and already have, you know, a good pipeline of, of new customers. And, you know, we found some really great ones. In that and, there, and there's some businesses we've really loved of the, you know, 99% we didn't invest in mm. that were perfect in every, in every way, except the valuation had already run away. Yeah. And our job, the fiduciary responsibility to our LPs is to try to make very big multiples of their capital. Yeah. So those are companies that we stay in touch with. And in many cases, they may be buyers of our companies in the future, strategic partners, or you know, one model we like a lot that, that I learned from the Riverstone days is a successful entrepreneur. He or she is likely to do it again and then again. And maybe we Maybe we back her in the second or the third time if we missed the boat the first time. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ars, you just mentioned coastal VCs, which brings up an intriguing point for me. I'm sure there's a lot of activity from the coastal VCs when it comes to renewable energy. Are you guys seeing a lot of activity in the oil and gas space from those firms? I know I have several reach out to me just asking where they can learn about oil and gas technology, but are we actually seeing any guys cut checks from the coastal? We're kind of coastal, right? We have Galveston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me specify West Coast or East Coast, not the third coast. <laughs> I'll say Founders Fund is pretty pretty yeah. active. I see I see their name kind of repeatedly coming up in the space. They've so we in- we spend some time with their team and uh, there's a few other of the big name firms that spend time in in various non-traditional Silicon Valley markets. They've made a number of interesting investments. And so we love to compare notes. And, and our job really is to be a partner. But we've led investments. We've been partner on investments. We just want to be involved with the best companies and the best people. But largely, I would say the the oil and gas opportunity has been seen as a, as a trend or a, an off-market theme. 
for some of the traditional West Coast VCs, whereas we're really committed to it through yeah. the cycle and you know, have invested in a way our careers and having the knowledge base to try to differentiate what is good for all seasons versus what's a good investment because you know the market is dipped. Yeah. Do you feel like some of the valuations coming out of Silicon Valley are just completely ridiculous? Yes. <laughs> Short answer in a word. Yeah. <laughs> and to follow up with that, I need y'all's opinion on the electric scooter craze too, what you guys think about those, you know, as a as a mode of transportation, which, you know, does have some effect when it comes to energy. Jake and I are very big on electric scooters, but you know, when you talk about crazy valuations, I think those guys are kind of taking the cake right now. Yeah. Same thing with same thing with Uber with the apparent $120 million, $120 billion IPO. I just, I don't see it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a real, a real valuable case for last mile mobility, last mile electric mobility. But I think, yeah, you said it perfectly, Colin, the valuation. I'm not sure I follow. And also having been almost run over in Boston, LA, San Francisco and Austin, I can see why in the Bay Area, they throw them into the water. A funny, funny story. When we're at ATC, one of our buddies, they were riding them with a client and the client hit the brakes and he didn't want to take out their client. So he ditched, bailed on a scooter and ended up breaking his arm. So yeah, yeah, we're definitely having some casualties. He was was hanging out drinking, holding his arm like this. Yeah, for the rest of the night, he was chicken weed. Yeah. So- no, that, that's really interesting. And then, you know, kind of coming back to y'all's CEO summit, what I really like about y'all is that it seems that you've got this vision of connecting everybody within energy and really taking a collaborative approach when it comes to investing and connecting people. You know, that, that's a really big mission between Jake and I is to really connect oil and gas with quote unquote Silicon Valley and show people that there's a lot of cool things that are going on in oil and gas. I think oil and gas is a gold mine waiting to be tapped when it comes to digital technology over the next decade. So when you guys look for, you know, look for partnerships at y'all's summit, you had a lot of private equity VCs, you had some oil and gas companies. Is there like anybody specific in oil and gas that you're looking to work with? And what are the value adds that you guys give those types of groups? And then what do you guys look to extract from them as well? Most of them were invested in Blue Bear, which is mm-hmm. one important way to kind of really systematize a network connection is have an aligned economic incentive. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the institution is invested in the institution, but at least on an individual basis, on a on a network basis, there's a strong mutual commitment. You know, I think one thing that the people in Houston and energy realize that you know you have four million people in the city, but when it comes to oil and gas, it's a small town. It is. Yeah. And and the better you can help to build that that ecosystem, those sets of relationships, I think it the better it is for all of us. And you know, frankly, that's exactly what Houston Exponential and Greater Houston Partnership is trying to really foster. You know, what's Houston's role going to be in energy in the future. And it won't just be oil and gas. It'll be renewables as well. Mm-hmm. And it'll be the kinds of people that were at our CEO summit. We had mm-hmm. over 70 people there. And as you mentioned, it was a combination of our limited partners, investors, private equity people, people from the community that are leaders in energy. And I think you know we're going to do our part to try to build that network and that ecosystem. Yeah. There's an immediate investment incentive, of course, if, if you're trying to make returns, but there's also a strategic value that a lot of these community partners have and it, in a way, it comes back to the uh, the valuation point you asked. We don't like to just look at a, a revenue base and put a multiple on it and say that's what the valuation should be. We like to look at, for a given technology in a given market, what's the total addressable market there? Mm. How big can this company naturally get? And who would want to own that? And so before we make any investment, we think about who would naturally want to own this business and get that startup idea in front of 
those eventual partners or acquirers and ideally even get them in person in a room together to understand where would this ultimately be driven? What's the strategic value you're bringing? Because that that justifies your price point and the ROI you can deliver to your operator. So if we've got Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, Equinor in a room looking at some of these companies, what we want to see is those strategics excited to be early customers and then potentially later on owners or partners of a business. So again, it's not just trying to make a, a quick flip. It's trying to build real long lasting strategic value across the community. I got you. And one thing that you said that kind of brought up a talking point for me, you said to have everybody aligned, the best way is to have economic incentives. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was thinking about when y'all had that panel at your summit, you know, the the panel was over building and managing a board of directors. And in a book that I read, Startup CEO, he says that he doesn't have anybody come on his board that hasn't invested any capital because he likes them having skin in the game. And I wanted to ask that question to some of your, your panel members to see what their thoughts were on that. And that kind of loops back around to the conversation of it is so vital to have the right board of directors for a company's success. Can you guys give our listeners a little bit of insight and advice to how y'all built y'all's board of directors? And do you agree with the statement that your board of directors have to be aligned and invested in your company to really help out? Yeah. So the short answer is completely agree. If you look at our website, for example, or went to our CEO Summit, virtually everybody associated with Blue Bear as an advisor or you know, maybe panelist is directly invested. There are a couple issues where there's compli- compliance or, or conflicts mm-hmm. issues. So there are certain people who, who just have a lot of other, I don't know, more institutional investment affiliations. And we'd rather have them be a very, very big partner in the future than a small partner today, which conflicts them out. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe also a takeaway for early stage companies as they raise themselves, think about what you're tying up if you do a certain deal in the near term. But in short, yeah, having that downside exposure and shared upside opportunity is is critical to alignment. Otherwise, you get people who are just spectators or they want to chat about blockchain for a few minutes and then go away, <laughs> yeah. uh, which we'd love to do for a drink, but we're not going to you know, institutionally partner with somebody if it's if it's just really a spectator sport to them. Yeah, that makes sense. You say that blockchain comment like it's happened to you previously. So he said it out of spite. <laughs> well, I'm usually the one you have to shut up about blockchain. Oh, okay. Good deal. So let's yeah. talk about blockchain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about blockchain. I can talk about blockchain for days. So we actually talked about it a little bit before we started recording. You guys say that you're focused on on supply and logistics. We've seen blockchain, you know, really starting to gain traction in this industry, not just oil and gas, but across many industries. Are y'all looking at any blockchain applications at this point? Is it something that you're bullish on? Kind of give us your initial thoughts. So again, this is mirrors a lot of the screening that we do in general. We've registered over a hundred energy blockchain businesses. We've met in person with a couple dozen of them and frankly have put out a couple of term sheets. So we think there are some categories that are really attractive. So first of all, this is probably obvious to many of your listeners, certainly to to you in the room here. We are not talking about cryptocurrencies. We're not talking about Bitcoin. We're not even talking about- It's always an important disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're talking about business models that are predicated on leveraging elements of, I don't even like to say distributed ledgers, more like decentralized databases or redundant databases and smart contracts, so programmable agreement mechanisms that self-execute when consensus is reached. That lends itself very well, we think, to solving inefficiencies in 
trading, settlement, supply chain management, and a few other applications. But all of that has to be coupled with the two things that we always look for. One is industry expertise. We don't believe in investing in the protocol layer of the blockchain stack. We're more about the application layer, which requires some knowledge of the business function and the nature of the assets being managed. And then number two, a business model. And that's been the most challenging part for us. There's a lot of really, really good ideas that are just never going to make money. If you look at you know, TCP IP as the dominant infrastructure of the internet, not a lot of people have gotten rich on that, yeah. except for maybe Cisco selling the routers and switches, but, but that's a hardware story. So we think having a clearly defined revenue model that scales and remains profitable as it grows is, is really important for our investment thesis. Yeah. So, you know, just like the other investments, customer attraction is is vital. In fact, with blockchain, it may be even more valuable because you need to have the network effect to gain the, the true value of blockchain. Yeah. So those are some of the challenges that we've seen. I feel like and the, all that the concept of revenue is kind of lost on a lot of <laughs> blockchain projects yeah. that were releasing white papers, raising $100 million. And it's like, all right, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> we raised the money. <laughs> well, and, and when you think about it, I mean, when you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin was released and it never had a revenue model and everyone else wanted to build a decentralized platform. And I've always questioned, I said, there's no money to be made here. You know, how are you going to continue to sustain? So it seems like a lot of fundamental business principles went out the window yeah. during the blockchain and ICO craze of 2016, 2017. Yeah. And we don't want to sound too cynical here, but there are certain things that just, that are just difficult if you're an investor in the category. For example, if somebody brings to you a really attractive proposition, but it's for a, an ICO or a pre-ICO token offering, and you say, I, I don't think we can necessarily invest in that, but if you decide to do a different structure, we can come back. And they come back, this has happened multiple times, and say, okay, well, good news, we've, we've reworked the security. It's now not a token, it's a convertible note. So, okay, well, great. What does it convert into? Well, a token. <laughs> if and when we do the ICO. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, yeah, a lot of iteration left to go, but we're in early innings. So we think the investment and in learning a lot of these dynamics is worth it now. And, and we want to be positioned to invest heavily when the time is right, the time if, is right if that yeah. happens. Yeah. We've actually got a lot of friends that are heavily involved in the blockchain space and, you know, raised tens of millions of dollars in capital through ICOs. And there's a lot of problems that come along with that, not just with SEC regulation, but mm -hmm. use of the, the utility as well. So yeah. yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, we think they're all securities by the way. Oh, we do too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah trust me. I've been in that space for a couple of years. <laughs> if it now, looks like security, yeah. it smells like a security. It's definitely. Security. We were actually just at lunch today, uh, joking around about that. Uh, you know, one of our investors and business partners was advisors in some companies and yeah, they're going through some rough times when it comes to what's a utility and a security. And, so. and the perverse thing I think is if it's not a security and management is trying to promote that it's not a security, why the hell do you want to invest in it? Because you're by definition not going to earn rights to the cash flows or the equity value of the business. <laughs> that was kind of the point that we brought up. Uh, some of these ICOs are starting to get delisted from secondary exchanges. And I told Jake, I said, well, that shouldn't be a problem because these are utility tokens. They should be, you know, there should be an ecosystem where they're getting mm -hmm. used on the platform. And I said, unless they're securities and people <laughs> care to have a secondary platform to profit off of them. So yeah, it's kind of, kind of ironic when, when you look at it from that angle, but yeah, we're, we're on the same page with you. We believe they're all securities as well. So that is something, you know, we talk about oil and gas blockchain on LinkedIn a lot. And, you know, the other day I made a post about blockchain applications within land and title and some yeah. of the comments I got on there, people are, you know, 
referencing tokens. And it seems like we're still about five steps back when it comes to the education of how blockchain applications can actually be used within oil and gas because everyone automatically thinks that you need a cryptocurrency or a token. So, you know, there's a, a huge education barrier there and there's really not a ton of good resources to go learn unless you're digging through blog posts on Medium or Hacker right. Noon, and something the, like that. At the same time, that blockchain seems to be this one crazy exception where people, maybe it's because they don't understand it, but there's so much hype and interest and we have so many inbound inquiries from companies, whether it be EMP, service companies, you name it, of, hey, how can we implement blockchain? Like, Everybody feels like they need to get on this bandwagon way more than we've seen with any other technologies in oil and gas space, at least in my like last six years operating in that space. Yeah, it's really weird. I'm sure you guys are familiar with it, but there's an internal forum here in Houston. Yeah, that's got gas some operators the, forum, yeah, I got yeah. some of the biggest oil and gas EMPs that are discussing blockchain every month. And and, well, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and us. Yeah. But when you talk about, you know, something like data management. Nobody gets riled up about it. You know, nobody's up in arms about data management, but then you say blockchain and everybody's about blockchain. And another thing that's really weird about blockchain is that oil and gas companies are looking to work together, you know, mainly because that's a, a primary function of blockchain. There has to be some interoperability within the uh, fabric, but it's just kind of weird because it doesn't seem like we've seen a technology be, being adopted like this in oil and gas, but blockchain's kind of breaking the mold when it comes to that. Are there any other technologies kind of outside of your portfolio companies and now I guess outside of blockchain that you guys are excited about in this space? Or if not, are there any ones that you think are overhyped? So one boring answer, but I think an important one is around the definition of AI and you know, machine learning, data analytics, big data. These, these buzzwords all get lumped in the same category. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a very complex, rich, longstanding field, about 200 years old since the invention of, or the, the inception of programmable computing by Ada Lovelace in you know the 1830s or so. <laughs> so people think this is just a, a trend or a hype. That's clearly wrong. People think this is completely about to pop and the world's going to be taken over by machines. That's wrong also. But there are so many different instances and applications of AI and different approaches to machine learning, for example, that once something's actually working, it's immediately demystified. So we see this in portfolio companies all the time. If you show that your machine learning approach can improve, uh, Omnidian is another great example. Mm -hmm. They're reducing downtime by 30% on distributed solar assets by using machine learning. You say, oh, that sounds amazing. How does that actually work? Like, well, they take patterns, performance history on now nearly 20,000 solar rooftops and compare that to seasonality, to where a piece of hardware is in its warranty life what kind of community activities around. And you see that a power signature drops a little bit and you can correlate that to shading from trees or dirt from you know, a recent rainstorm or one of the biggest downtime causes is power electronics fry because a squirrel chews through the cables. <laughs> and you start to explain that. And the response is, oh, well, that's not AI. That's just obvious. And in every instance of AI or machine learning more narrowly, if you explain how it works, it it's demystified yeah, and it gets kind of discarded as, well, that's not real AI. So there's a great line from one of the leading researchers from the seventies who says the definition of AI is whatever we don't think it can do yet. And we think that's pretty prevalent attitude. So we look for instances that actually make money and have a real positive ROI today. And whether it seems sexy or not is in the eye of the beholder. But I, I struggle the, the more, the more exciting and I don't know, dazzling a technology is, the less likely it is to be making money already. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so dazzled by it. So yeah. I see quantum computing, for example, it's 
fascinating, but I don't think there'll be a lot of revenue streams out of that anytime soon. And not in fund one for us. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, I think another area, which, you know, maybe it's pretty obvious to, to your listeners, but a lot of industry really hasn't adopted the internet of things. There's so much data out there that could still be collected. Mm-hmm. And so we look at companies that may be able to optimize that approach yeah. and then take advantage of that. So, you know, it's not really replacing sensors, it's about adding new sensors where there, there wasn't the, the ability to collect that data. And what can you do to optimize operations, make them more efficient? Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to your point of machine learning, artificial intelligence, it is a lot of buzzwords. We've seen a couple of good, really good use cases within oil and gas with ambient and thought trace. Mm-hmm. And, but it goes back both of what both of you said goes back to like rudimentary problems of data management. You know, we can't data le- quality. Yeah. And data quality, we can't leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence until we have good data quality. And then when it comes to IOT, we want to get all these new sensors and, you know, have all this uh, field data capture and get all this new information, but we got to deal with all the data that we already have that's not being utilized. There's no point of putting all these, these new sensors out there if we're not utilizing what we already have out in the field. And then when we start adding all the new sensors, then, you know, all the, the new cybersecurity threats come in as well. So it's like a, a complex ladder of problems yeah, that we're going to have to walk through. But within yeah. that, there's a lot of opportunity to come up with solutions to the problems. I can see on the upstream side, just having worked very intimately in that space, the sentiment towards what I guess you would call more of a traditional SCADA system is not overwhelmingly positive. Just traditionally, they've been expensive. They break all the time. And most of the time it's for very because of that, and there's the fact that they're not reliable, you've got pumpers out there who can just gauge stuff anyways. And so it's very basic things, tank volumes, meter readings and stuff like that. And so we haven't seen a significant amount of adoption. I mean, you see with the bigger companies, you see with the Chevrons and the Oxys and the XTOs and mm-hmm. people like that, but you don't see it with a large amount of like the midsize and large independent operators. You just don't. So I'm curious if things will change kind of with more of IoT type devices rather than just traditional SCADA devices in that market. Now, I can say that on the midstream and downstream side, I could definitely see that from an adoption standpoint a lot earlier on. But upstream is definitely, I think, just the reliability of SCADA systems has kind of ruined that for that market. Yeah. And it's a lot about also the the quality and variety of the data points you're able to pull in. We've had, I forget who, who it was, but some of the big traditional service company executives have said to us, well, we tried all this SCADA stuff in the 90s and it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't allow the kind of analytics you're talking about. Well, in the 90s, you didn't have cloud computing. You didn't have yep. the degree of wireless communication or network connectivity. You didn't have GPUs and TPUs able to process all this data as quickly. And you didn't have mobile devices to be able to do it and implement analytics on site or the, the results of analytics on site. So there's a whole ecosystem and supply chain around that data that's enabled you to make more interesting, draw more interesting relationships and do more interesting analytics out of existing sources in a, in a faster cycle. And then there's also just the investment in the data analytics itself. Uh, if you look at example like Duke Energy, and that's a utility, so arguably an even more conservative industry, but they employed their first data scientist, I think in 2015. The last I've heard, they now have 35 data scientists. And that kind of growth and investment in, in the analytics capabilities has got to be yielding results. And they've identified over $100 million of cost savings or uptime improvements that they are actually getting out of those analytics. And we think if that can work in utilities, clearly it's it's been working for people like EOG and Pioneer and some of the early leaders in oil and gas, that's, that's only going to spread throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. 
One question I want to ask you guys while we have y'all here. So as a startup founder, you know, founders usually hold venture capitalists, like throw up on this pedestal, you know, they're like the Holy grail. And I was actually looking at a Twitter thread the other day from the founder of Y Combinator. And he was talking about this, about getting a hold of venture capitalists. And he said that you can, you can cold email him and he'll take a look at it. Now we've had other smaller VCs. I think of one off the top of my head in Austin that said that he will not talk to anybody that doesn't come to him through an, an introduction. So do you guys have any advice for startup founders that are wanting to get a hold of venture capitalists? Is there an approach that works best? As it, I mean, obviously a warm in, intro is always the best way, but do you guys look at anything that comes across the desk in, in, a, in a cold email or is there a, a way that founders should approach this? Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a warm introduction is always good, right? Because you have some credibility, at mm -hmm. least, you know, some transferred credibility. Yeah. But, you know, we probably get a handful every day, both of us. And we, to the extent that we can, we respond to those. And, you know, oftentimes we get emails where we can tell right off the bat, it's a material science bit or it's chemistry, something that's not in our, our purview. But yeah. we, we tried to really be good for the overall ecosystem and respond back and say, look, it's not really part of our investment thesis. But then, you know, something does look interesting. We're very likely to take a look at it. Yeah. One of our most exciting investments that we that we closed on came through a cold email to the info at bluebearcap.com email address. Nice. <laughs> and, and that was just an entrepreneur who understood what we were doing, recognized that their business fit it well, articulated very clearly what they were doing and why, why we should be a fit. And yeah, we were maybe a little bit skeptical that such a great investment would have come out of nowhere and we hadn't heard of it, but our job is to take that call and take that meeting. Do you think maybe that's a problem that founders just kind of spam email all VCs and don't really do any due diligence on the fund to see if it's a fit in the first place? And, you know, maybe they need to do a little bit more homework to see, you know, one, this isn't going to be a waste of y'all's time because it fits within your investment thesis and with your other portfolio companies. You know, maybe that even shows you a sign of the founder having the capability of doing that due diligence in the first place. Do you think that may be an issue? Do you guys ever have just like random, you know, deals that come across your desk that don't fit your thesis at all? We get quite a few of those. I mean, it would be much better if someone did their homework because you know, I think you can get at least a, a decent idea of what our investment thesis is from our, our website. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if there's a fit there and if they were to phrase their approach to fit our investment thesis, we're much more likely to take a strong look at it. Okay. Yeah, but it's a bit of a problem in the commons, right? If if you're the founder, the fact that you've written an email to, I don't know, a thousand VCs and it doesn't fit 950 of them, but you get the 50 that it does fit, good for you. It's yeah. annoying for us. Our inboxes are that much fuller, but uh, <laughs> can't blame you. Yeah. But sure, the best the best chance of success is to is to have a genuine authentic fit between what you're doing and what the, the VC invests into. Have a look at their portfolio and try to maybe draw comparisons between what we're doing is kind of like company X in your portfolio, except it's for market Y. And that's hard to ignore then. And also I would just say, maybe it's stating the obvious, but we, we certainly miss emails that we should have responded to just because it catches us as we're boarding a flight or yeah, yeah. busy that day. So I would encourage founders to not be shy about following up. Following yeah, up. That's okay. great advice. Okay. That's really good. I can tell you, you know, even from email outreach that we've done that yeah. you never want to be the person that's kind of nagging and pestering someone. So yeah, I got a question. I'm, I'm curious to see what y'all's answer will be. I see, obviously we interface with a ton of entrepreneurs, right? And I think sometimes 
entrepreneurs get so fixated on raising capital more than they like that is their goal rather than actually building the business. And I feel like that raising capital, I think in part due to Silicon Valley has become almost like this rite of passage amongst, especially like first time entrepreneurs. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? It's hard to go about life without it. Yeah. Yeah. Rule number one, don't run out of money. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good rule. Do you guys, I mean, do you guys think that, especially when you're talking about software, so if you're talking about any type of physical equipment, you know, it's pretty hard to do without capital, but when it comes to software, do you guys like to see someone have an MVP and have the capability of being resourceful and starting to build out software. I mean, I know for you guys specifically, you're not necessarily pre-revenue. So that's probably a pretty easy question, but I just feel that, you know, founders should be able to figure out how to start developing their product. If, especially if it's software without a capital raise. Yeah, completely agree. And of course, easier said than done. Yeah. But that's just, that's just a fact and it may be unfair, but there's a chicken and egg problem always in in investing or in many other things in life where you know you got to have something to get someone's attention but you need people's attention to help develop that something it's also meaningful when someone is invested in their own company in good measure and yeah. is very frugal and efficient with their capital you can tell that definitely yeah mm-hmm. you, oh go ahead no and you would expect to have a founder get an initial amount of buy-in from their own immediate network yeah. mm-hmm. before they come to you. Yeah. If they're not able to raise some amount of capital, maybe it's, it's small, but from the people who already know their reputation and their capabilities or you know their former bosses, that's an indication as well. And you know, we experienced this ourselves as we were starting Blueberry, as Tim said at the beginning. One of our primary rules was to live within our means and never get in a position where if this next thing doesn't work out, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. And obviously you're always kind of on that line, <laughs> but it's uh, always a fine you know, right. balance. Yeah. <laughs> but to try to, to put yourself in a position where you can get lucky. And if you get unlucky, you, you have a chance to, to recover from that and live to see another yeah, day, live to fight another day. Yeah. You know, one thing for Jake and I is we really look for people that are, are resourceful. I think mm-hmm. that's probably one of the biggest indicators of someone that's going to be successful. So I just think that if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, you have to be able to be resourceful and find solutions to your problems because business is full of them. So if you can't, if you can't find solutions, you're going to have a hard time making it to the top. So, well, guys, I think we're kind of getting close to the time. Cool. You got any, anything else important to ask? This is packed full of information. I mean, I got all my, we, we talked about so many things, but I think this was a great conversation. Like always, we always have great conversations with you guys. So I'm hoping the listeners got as much value out of it as we do. If you guys, so, so if, if any entrepreneurs want to reach out to you, anybody else wants to reach out to you, obviously was it blueberrycapital.com or is blueberry cap cap blueberrycap.com. You guys can, can reach out there. Obviously both of you guys are on LinkedIn as well. So you can look them up any other ways to find you guys. Twitter, huh? You're on Twitter. Yeah, we're on Twitter. You know, we're not as active as some people, but you know, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn. <laughs> we try to website. only post valuable and relevant content. So, yeah, no but, cat videos. Yeah, <laughs> no cat videos. So, it's, uh, it's yeah, a no at, for me then. At Blue, <laughs> at Blue Bear Cap is the Twitter handle. I'll also just add that, you know, Jacob and Colin, you guys are an amazing part of this network and what you're doing, getting the message out there through this podcast and the various other things you do. I know you've got some operating interests. You've got a tech interest. You've got an advisory interest. Uh, you're a great resource to the community. So appreciate it. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. We appreciate, appreciate that. that. Thank you all for coming on. Our pleasure. Come, 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 come.